We are reading from Isaiah 4, 5, 18 to 25. For this is what the Lord said. He has created the heavens. He is God. He has fashioned and made the earth. He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He said, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret, but from somewhere in a land of darkness, I have not said to Jacob's descendants, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble your fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together, who foretold this long ago, who declared it from the distant past. Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and, put, and be put to shame, but all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will be, make them their boast in him. Thank you, girls. Good job. Appreciate that. Thanks for helping us out this morning. Alrighty. Well, here we go. We are uh, continuing a series this morning that we've been in for the last couple of weeks called, Hello, My Name is God. Uh, we're asking a few questions week in and week out. How is God portrayed in the Bible? How do we see God revealing himself? And what kind of portraits did past generations of believers paint of God? How does scripture help us understand and possibly misunderstand who God is? So a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how we have to be careful that when we talk about God, we're pressed to speak about something that we cannot speak about. That when we try to use words to talk about God, we are defining him and we're at risk of limiting him. So all speech about God, therefore, falls short. We're pointing to something that lies beyond words. This is the kind of starting point that we've got to have. Uh, there's this great line in Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead, where one of the characters says, there are things I don't understand. I'm not going to force some theory on a mystery and make foolishness of it, just because that is what people who talk about it normally do. And so rather than be forceful, uh, let's proceed with open minds and open hearts this morning. Now, last week after the sermon, I sat down at a discussion table in the gym, as many of you will do today, and the introductory question was to go around the circle and talk about the significance or the meaning of your name. And there were like eight of us at the table, and everyone went around the circle and started talking about, well, I was named after my great aunt so-and-so, or I was named after this, or my name has this meaning. And with all due respect to my parents, it came to me, and I said, my name really doesn't have any meaning at all, or any significance. I wasn't named after anyone. Uh, and so I started feeling bad about this during the week, so I decided to look it up. I said, i got to figure this out. There's got to be a, a real meaning to my name. So I did some work. And, uh, you know, if you, if you go on the internet, you can find the answers to any of your questions. So I've discovered that the name Brandon is an English baby name derived from a place name based on the Old English for hill covered with broom. Broom being a prolific weed. So my name means 
a hill covered with weeds. Profound. So I kept looking. There's got to be something else. And then it said that this English word was actually taken from an old Irish word. And I said, well, maybe that's where the meaning is. And then this is what I read. The name has no meaning in the Irish language. Nothing. It doesn't even mean anything. And I was like, which is worse? A hill covered with weeds or nothing? So I dug even deeper. Apparently, Brandon is also a French word. Brandon. Which means firebrand. And I was like, oh, that's got potential. So definition number one of a firebrand is a piece of burning wood. Oh, no, that's not going to cut it. Finally, definition number two of the French version of my name, firebrand. A person who is passionate about a particular cause, typically inciting change and taking radical action. Synonyms, radical, revolutionary. I am basically Che Guevara. That's me. Or, if that's offensive to you, Jesus. All right, so this morning we are going to quickly and thankfully shift the focus from the meaning of my name to the meaning of the many names given to God down on through the years. Last week we had a bit of an introduction via Kristen Taylor to God's invitation to Moses to participate in his unfolding story. Uh, if you've been around church at all, you would have heard the story of the burning bush. And so Kristen introduced us to this idea that Moses is out minding his own business, tending his sheep, and God speaks to him from this bush and calls him to participate in this, the setting free of his people from slavery in Egypt. And Moses, uh, wanting to draw some power from this God, wanting to know what authority he had to act in, he asked God, what is your name? What should I tell people? And he says, I am that I am. I am who I am. I am is this name that God gives. And Moses went forward. Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher, writes, when you are sent forth, God remains present for you. Whoever walks in his mission always has God before him. The more faithful the fulfillment, the stronger and more constant the nearness. And so as Moses walked into this impossible scenario confronting Pharaoh and setting his people free, he knew that God was with him, that God was near. But even after Moses' life came to an end and Joshua took on the mantle of leadership, bringing the Israelites into the promised land, well, the story was far from over. If the people had been wandering on one side of the Jordan River, they spent most of the centuries that followed on the other side of the Jordan wavering in their faithfulness. The unfolding narrative of God's work among the Hebrew people introduces us to a number of names that were given to God during those wavering years, often as a result of how people experienced God's presence in their midst. A number of names, because when you don't know how to name something, you give it many names. Consider this strange creature. What is it? Is it a gopher? A groundhog? A prairie dog? A woodchuck? It's all the same thing. Why do we have so many names for it? Like think of another animal that has so many different names, but we have all these different names. Well, on a slightly more serious note, Meister Eckert, the Christian mystic, he writes that the unnameable is omninameable. So if we can give four names to this creature, how many names can we give to God? An infinite variety of names. He suggests that this is important because it protects us against thinking that just one name could ever say it all. 
And so throughout the Old Testament, as people begin to experience God's presence in their midst, they, they give him names, and God reveals his own names to his people. There's this beautiful passage from Isaiah 43 to 45. Our reading this morning was part of this passage, and I went through it and wrote down all the different ways that God refers to himself in this passage. I am he who created you, he who formed you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, your Redeemer, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. I am he who made a way through the sea. I am he who blots out your transgressions. I am he who remembers your sins no more. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. I am Israel's King, the Lord Almighty, the Maker of all things, the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. I am he who created the heavens, he who fashioned and made the earth. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God, the God and Savior of Israel. All of these names, and these just in three little chapters, describing who God is for his people, describing who God is for us. Now, one of the incredibly challenging aspects of God's self-revelation in the Bible is that some of the words attributed to God are pretty tough to swallow. Now, I could give dozens, if not hundreds, of examples, but I'll stick with two from the prophecy of Ezekiel. Chapter 12, verse 20. The inhabited towns will be laid waste, and the land will be desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 28, verse 23, I will send a plague upon you and make blood flow in your streets. The slain will fall within you with the sword against you on every side. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, there is so much of me that does not want to talk about this. But then there's just enough of me that knows how detrimental it can be to our faith to avoid talking about it. Somewhere along the line, we've been told that this is who God is and to shut our mouths about it. He is who he is. He will be who he will be. But it requires some serious mental gymnastics to convince ourselves that we don't have a problem with God using such destructive language to reveal himself. It's one thing to say, I am he who remembers your sin no more, he who formed you in the womb. It's another thing to say, I am he who will make blood flow in the streets. I am he who will lay waste to towns. That's a little harder for us to swallow. There's so much that we read about God in the Old Testament that doesn't make sense, that doesn't sit well in our stomachs, that threatens to unravel our faith altogether if we're not careful. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to be careful that we don't project our own likes and dislikes onto God. Well, if I don't like this, then, then God must not like it. Or our own values or preferences. Well, this is something I care about, therefore God must care about it. But there's also something about the fact that we are created in the image of God that we need to pay attention to. I can hear the question maybe asking, well, isn't it arrogant to think that our wisdom is somehow greater than God's? That, that we know better than, than God? Isn't that arrogant? But then I think, isn't it arrogant to think that our compassion is greater than God's compassion? To think that our mercy is wider than God's mercy? If I'm reading something about God and thinking like, well, I would be more compassionate than that, or I would be more merciful than that, then maybe I've got to pause for a second and ask if I'm misunderstanding something. 
Okay, so I'm going to show you an image here. Uh, I sent this to Graham and Melissa in the office this week, and Melissa said I need to give a disclaimer. I am not actively looking for a job. Okay, so I get this email from LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn, you just get them. They're like, here's a bunch of jobs you like. They just assume everyone wants a new job. And so I get this email, it says, top job picks for you, the number one, a project coordinator at the Ontario Cannabis Store. Now I'm sitting here going like, what? Like, why is that the top job pick for me? What algorithm came up with that? And like below it says there's a skill match of leadership. And I'm like, that's enough to recommend that I run a pot store? Anyways, in a similar way, if we characterize God based on limited information, we risk coming to conclusions about who he is and what he's interested in that are just plain wrong. Clark Pinnock, uh, theology, a theologian, he taught at McMaster Divinity in Hamilton for a number of years. He says, surely it is better that there be no belief in God than that the God who is believed in be an idol who diminishes and humiliates people. Well, now, fortunately, those aren't our only options. When I read these passages, I have to remind myself that people are involved and that these people, whether Moses or Gideon or Isaiah or Ezekiel, whoever else we read about, that they were people the same way you and I are people. A number of years ago, I don't know if you remember this, there was a, a mini-series on the Bible that came out. And I, I PVR'd it, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to watch this. Uh, this is something I'm interested in. And I think I watched like a couple episodes, and it was kind of hokey, so I stopped. But I remember one piece of it that kind of struck me. And it was a, they were telling the story of Abram so early on in Israel's story where God speaks to Abram and says, basically, I, I want to make a, a people out of you. I want to make a nation for you. You got to leave your homeland. Um, so, I mean, I've read this story like a hundred times and I've heard it preached about it a lot of times. And, uh, but watching it unfold on the screen, it's like this guy walking along some hill by himself and he stops and is like, what? And he is like the father of all monotheistic religions in the world because he's walking down the street and he hears the sound and goes, what? Oh, okay. And just watching it unfold on the screen, I was like, oh yeah, this was a guy. Like this was a, an actual person. Like sometimes when we read stories, it's just like a story. But this was an actual person that we were reading about. This is someone who, who heard something. And I'm sure that there are many people in this room who, who would say with a measure of humility that you've heard God speak to you or God calling to you or God giving some impression on your heart. And I think as a human, I don't know, if you're anything like me, you question it. And you're like, like, I know that wasn't me. I know, I just know that was God. But my goodness, like, I don't know what my confidence level is here. And I remember watching that scene with Abram and thinking, how confident was he that that's what God was saying? And how good was his memory to remember exactly what God was telling him to do? I mean, this is a big deal. This is significant stuff. Now, obviously, there's a problem with thinking about the story this way. Because we've all, I think, been taught and, and raised, those of us who've been in a church for any given amount of time, um, that the Bible's inspired. That this is the inspired word of God, which, of course, it is. But when we talk about the Bible being inspired, what are we saying? What do we mean by this? If God inspired our Bible, how is it possible for him misquoted or even misrepresented, if that's possible? Doesn't the Bible say everything that God wants it to say? That's a very good question. And honestly, we should be talking about this, doing a whole series 
on its own about what this idea of inspiration of our Bible means. But just give me, let me give you an example here. So last week, uh, an article was printed in the local paper uh, about churches, and this is like a little screenshot of it here. So uh, earlier in the week, I had spoken with the, the writer on the phone for about like an hour, and so a good chunk of the article actually is quoting me in conversation with me. And so I was sitting in my office, and Melissa texted me, and she's like, what the heck? There's an article about you in the paper. What's going on? And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So I hopped online, and I found the article, and all of a sudden, like, my heart's pounding a little bit, right? I'm just like, what is he going to say? Like, what parts of that hour-long conversation did he pick out for this little article? And is he going to say what I said word for word? Or is he going to just summarize? Or is he going to misquote me? Like, am I going to read something and be like, oh, my gosh. Like, people all over this city think I believe that. So I was nervous about it. And I read it, and truthfully, there were a couple things. You know, grammar matters to me. So there are a couple things I'm like, no, I wouldn't structure a sentence like that. Um, <laughs> that was, like, my first reaction. And then I was like, no, no, but whatever. Like, the spirit of it is generally right, okay? And so then a few days ago, actually, um, Owen sends Melissa and I this link to an article. He was bored in class, I guess, one day, and Googled me. And he's Googling different people. And he found this article from, like, 2007 with me. So another interview with me. Uh, so reading an interview with you in the present is nerve-wracking. Reading an interview that took place, like, 12 years ago, like my 30-year-old self, that is even more nerve-wracking. And so I read this, and I'm like, like, I, I did say these things, right? But is it possible that that's me? Like, how could I, you know? And, and some of the stuff, of course, I'm like, yeah, that's right, that's good. But some of the language is just different. And, and I'm thinking, man, anyone can just Google me and read this and think, well, this is, I guess, the way Brandon rolls. This is what he thinks. And so with these two different kind of weird experiences this week in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, at the end of the day, people will think what they think, whether they read this article from 12 years ago, or whether they read the article from this week, they'll read, they'll, they'll read the quotes that are attributed to me, and they'll think what they think. And if they really want to know me, then they'll have a chance to clear up any discrepancies, right? It doesn't have to be the end of the conversation. If someone reads it and says, oh, how could you say that? They can always reach out, and I can always clarify. Now, at risk of projecting my own experiences on God, is it not at least possible that God is confident enough in his ability to reveal himself for who he truly is to let even the worst characterizations of him stand. You see, not only is God bigger than our worst ideas about God, but God is bigger than even our best ideas about God. And I don't think we should be afraid to ask these questions, to put these contradictions and these mind-bending kind of ideas out to God in prayer. This line from an old kind of unfamiliar U2 song came to my mind this week. Stop helping God across the road like a little old lady. God is big enough to speak for himself. God is big enough to reveal who he is and fix any of the misunderstandings or misconceptions that we have got down on through the years. I was writing this section of my sermon, actually, when I was out for lunch. Jude is homesick right now. He's got bronchitis. And I actually took him to the x-ray clinic on Friday morning to make sure he doesn't have pneumonia. And when we got in there, the woman at the desk says, it's a really long wait. She's like, it's going to be like at least an hour. Why don't you go grab a bite to eat and then come back in an hour? 
And Jude looks at me and he says, shawarma? So we walk out to the car and sure enough, in this little plaza we happened to be out, there was a little uh, Lebanese restaurant. So we sat in there. And uh, when we finished eating lunch, I pull up my laptop and I'm working on the sermon and I'm writing this stuff. And then I look up at Jude and he's smiling. And I'm like, what are you smiling about? And he's like, I just sent Owen a picture of you. And I'm like, why? He's like, I wanted to show him your new hat. And I'm like, show me the picture. He's like, I snapped it, it's gone. I'm like, that's an invasion of privacy. He said, Dad, he's your son. And I was like, okay, yeah, I guess. So here's the thing. This is why I say this. God wants us to know him. God's like, oh, no, I don't want. God wants to reveal himself to us. He wants us to know who he is. And at risk of stealing the thunder of last week's message, I have to at least mention this, that I believe that among other things, Jesus is God the Father's response to humanity's well-intentioned but sometimes dangerously misguided perceptions of who he is. And we'll talk about this more next week, about who, how Jesus reveals the Father is. It corrects some of the things that maybe we've under, misunderstood about God. Clark Pinnock again writes that in the gospel, we encounter a God who loves and takes risks, becomes vulnerable even to the point of suffering, and reveals himself in a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. This is a God one can believe in. A God one can believe in, but sadly a God less and less people seem to be interested in. A 2017 Barna poll found that less than a quarter of all Americans talk about God or religious topics regularly. And I would just imagine that in our Canadian context, the number would be even lower. It's an age-old story, really. The God we read about in these Old Testament passages always seems to be struggling against humanity's tendency to forget about him altogether. As Samir Samanovich writes, people want God, but not one who is the captive of a religion. I don't know about you, but there's something compelling to me in the challenging work of untangling the two, introducing people to a God who has left his shackles behind. So as I was thinking about all these different names that are given to God, I had this thought that entered my mind, and then so I was looking online to see if I could find like an image to go along with it, and I found this website called Stuff Christians Like. And the reason I found it was because they had an article on the thing that I was searching for. Uh, this is what it says. When it comes to grammar and writing, our favorite thing as Christians is capitalizing holy words. And so they go on and they list this big list of words that Christians love capitalizing. Heaven, hmm, we like the capital H on that one. Jesus, goes without saying. God, don't you dare put a lowercase g. Holy Spirit, usually. You can get away with lowercase if you really have to. Bible, we love a capital B on that one. Satan, the guy writes, I think you're supposed to capitalize this, but I sometimes don't. Just because I think lowercasing it is like giving the devil the middle finger of grammar. Love it. And then, of course, there are all of God's nicknames. All of these names that we've heard attributed to God that receive the capital letter, like this next verse. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah especially, and all peppered throughout the Old Testament, all of these different names of God that help us understand who he is, how he wants us to know him. From our reading this morning, I am the Lord, there is no other. 
Out of all the various names for God to reveal to us, there are two truths that rise to the surface. The first is that he's not just a lowercase g God among many. There's no God apart from me, we read. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And the second thing that of all of these names I think is emphasized is that God alone can save his people. That God alone can save us. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. God has long been experienced by his people as redeemer, savior, and deliverer. This theme is just all over the pages of our Old Testament. But it's not just names. They're names given because this is how people experienced their relation with this God. As we head towards the conclusion of this part of our service, I want to read from a couple of chapters earlier than our reading, Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3. This is such a beautiful passage. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Plenty has changed since Isaiah wrote those words, but not our need for God. Most all of us know what it's like to be threatened by rising waters and raging flames. And of all the things we learn about God in the pages of the Bible, is that he is with us through it all. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I invite you to stand. Earlier this morning, we ate bread and we drank a cup, remembering what God has done for us in Jesus. Remembering that this redeeming, this saving, this delivering, that God entered into our human experience to do this. At the time of these passages that we're reading from the Old Testament, that was all future. That was all anticipated, but, but not yet experienced. And next week we're going to dive into what happened when Jesus came to reveal God for who he was and who he is and who he will be. We live in the space between the known and the unknown, between revelation and mystery, between who God has shown himself to be in generations past and who he will reveal himself to be right here in our midst, in the midst of our own waters and our own flames. Let us pray. God, what a privilege for us to be able to address you, to be able to stand in your presence, to be able to live and breathe in a world where you are present. God, it's incredible. It's my prayer this morning that as we've opened up the scriptures, as we've dug into how people have experienced you and, and how you've revealed yourself to your people over the years, that we would have a true and clear picture of who you are. And that it would not just be because we read about someone else's experience, as valuable as that can be, but it would be because we have our own experience with you as the one who is with us as the one who saves us, as the one who loves us. So God, I pray that 
These wouldn't just be thoughts, but they would be a deep experience. As we gather around tables, help us to sharpen one another and our understanding of who you are. Help us to see clarity in some of the ways that we misunderstand who you are. Draw us closer to you so we can represent you well and properly to the world around us. In Christ's name, amen.